If you want to turn to 1 John chapter 3, that's where we're going to start. First John chapter 3, we are beginning a new sermon series for the summer while Jeremy is gone. Um, <clears throat> I maybe didn't introduce myself for anybody that's new. I'm Michael. I am the associate pastor here on staff. Our senior pastor is out of town on a sabbatical. And uh, while the, the cats are away, the mice will play. So <laughs> the other elders and I, you can imagine we're having lots of fun with Jeremy gone. We're pretty together with Wayne and Rob and I. It's worth some laugh. Yes? Yes? Okay, there we go. Okay, so we're going to be doing a sermon series on the one another's, and I've got two goals for you this morning. The first goal is to give you a roadmap. It'll be real quick and easy. And the second goal is to help us focus on what we ought to do before we do the one another's, and I'll explain more when we get there. Here is our roadmap. So uh, blue is Michael, green is Wayne, and, and Rob is orange. So we've got an opening of love one another that's taking place today. And then after that, I will preach, and then Wayne will be up. I'm sorry, Rob will be up, and then Wayne will do a two-part do and don't of helping one another. And then I'll be up again, and then Rob will jump in with submit to one another, and then I'll do a final sermon to wrap up the series as far as dealing with the one another's themselves, but then finally the last one that you see there is going to be, okay, so now what do we do? Where, where do we go with this? How do we become more of a one another church? And with that, that puts us about two weeks before we would typically think school starting back up and ministries are starting back up in the fall. And so we want to be this summer thinking about what the one another's look like and then walking into this fall, hopefully more equipped to be able to accomplish these things. So that's where we're going to be going. Next, anchor passages. So for each of the one another's, what we've done is we have put them together in a group. That's why when you look back here, you see there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight of them. Love one another being the main but there are also some others. So let's just say there's mostly seven of them. And in Scripture, there's around 35 or 36 one another. So we've taken groups of three or four or five of them, and we've put them together into headings. That's how we came across this idea of making it work this way. So our anchor passages for this week are 1 John 3.11, which is where you are, and 2 John 5. 1 John 3.11, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, and then Second John 5, and now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. That's our anchor passage. Each one is going to have an anchor passage, but begs the question, why did I settle on love one another as the anchor passage? So just to help us get there scripturally, most of us already know this, but we can sum up all of the Old Testament laws with the statement, love God and love neighbor as self. So we see there that loving God and loving neighbors helped the Jews to accomplish all of the 613 or 14 laws, whichever type of Jew you would be, you might say it's 613, another person would say 614. So all of them could be summed up in that statement, 
Love God, love others. That's straight from Jesus' mouth. This is a good way to sum it up. 1 Corinthians 13, a very well-known passage if you're involved in any weddings this summer. Uh, my brother works for a catering company, so I actually helped him out with a couple parties, one last night and then one on Friday. I wasn't around for this, but maybe they talked about 1 Corinthians 13, but we're all very familiar with that, with that passage. And it ends with this statement, faith, hope, and love remain, but the greatest of these is love. Okay, so we would be like a clanging cymbal if we had the greatest of this or the greatest of that, but we lacked love. Therefore, love is a core element of this message. And then finally, in 1 John 4, 8, I threw that one in for two reasons. One, because it's within the same book that our text is in, 1 John 3, 11. And the other is that the scripture says that God is holy, but now the scripture also says that God is love. It also says he's patient and kind and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, as I quoted before. But God is love. We can sum up who God is by saying God is love. Am I going in and out in my mic? I am. Okay. So, just grab the handheld. Yeah, let me grab the handheld real quick. Might make it a little more challenging for me in a moment. Okay, yes. I think Rob just made fun of the fact that I'm Italian because <laughs> Italians can't talk without their hands, so now I'm limited to just one hand. It's going to be really, and half the time I'm going to be like moving things around, so it's going to be really difficult. Okay. So, I'm just kidding. All right, I'm fine. Okay, so God is love. Faith, hope, and love. Love the Lord your God. Pretty straightforward, right? Here's our anchor passage again. This is the message you've heard from the beginning. Love one another. It's not as though I were writing a new commandment to you, but the same one, that we ought to love one another. But there's a problem. If you look in your text at 1 John 3.11... For those of you who have cross-references, you might have something that looks like this. A little W there, superscript, that points to John 13, 34. So keep your finger in 1 John 3, flip over to John 13, look at verse 34, and you will see the problem. And I'll put it up on the screen so it's very obvious. A new commandment I give to you, Jesus says. A new commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So we have John, who's the author of 1 John, who's also the author of John, quoting Jesus, saying, this is a new commandment. And then we have John, who's the author of 1 John, in 1 John saying, this is not a new commandment. So what do we do with this? couple responses to that. The first would be that new doesn't necessarily mean brand new as in totally different. Think about purchasing a new car. My guess is it's probably substantially better than the last car that you've had whenever you purchase one, but my guess is also it still has four wheels, doors to get in and out, a steering wheel, a gas pedal, and uh, people can sit in it, so there's seats in there. So it is definitely new, even if it's not brand new, it's still new to you, but it's certainly still new, even though it's not new. So in one sense, this command is a brand new 
command. And in another sense, it's not a very new command. Well, here's another thing to think through. When Jesus in John 13 is speaking through what John has him speaking through or presenting there, it's in the middle of the Last Supper. And we know that the Last Supper would have been the equivalent of the Exodus Supper, the Passover, right? And so here's Jesus with a new command because he's establishing a new covenant. So there's another way to think through this newness. It's not that the covenant is entirely new or different. God is still the one acting, and we are still the recipients, just like the old covenant. But now with this new covenant, there's a new command that is given. Let's look at the differences that we have here. I love going in between passages of the Bible, so I don't mean to overwhelm you by all this flipping, but I just want you to see what we're looking at is coming from the text. So if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we will get a good idea from Paul of how we are to compare and contrast the new and the old covenant. And one thing I found so helpful in my studies that you have heard me share before is whenever the text zooms in, you want to zoom out. Basically, another way to say, don't forget the forest for the trees. He's getting very specific in his terminology, but the point is because he's trying to draw a broader picture or paint a a broader picture. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is going to talk about how ministers of the new covenant are to function. And in doing so, he compares and contrasts the new and the old covenant. Starting in verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? So what's happening in 2 Corinthians is that there are some supposed super apostles that are in Corinth who are telling the believers there, you don't need to be listening to Paul Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. He's a really unimpressive, unimpressive man in stature. He's very unimpressive in the way that he communicates. And he doesn't have all these things that he's done to show that he is an apostle of Jesus. So Paul's saying, do we really need to show you our letter of recommendation? It's actually you, Corinthians. You yourselves, verse 2, are our letter of recommendation. Written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And here he begins to talk about this comparison between the new and the old covenant. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. So there's the first comparison and contrast that you have up on the screen. Not with ink, but written by the spirit. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of hearts. There's the second one. Not on stone, but on hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Okay, this one's a little more veiled, but in verse 5 he says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves, and think about the old covenant way of living. There was a law, you were to live up to it, and we know from reading the Old Testament, nobody could live up to the law, so this is not sufficiency in ourselves, or to put it another way, not that we are righteous in our own right, but in verse 5, our sufficiency or our righteousness 
is from God. So there's the third one. Not righteousness or sufficiency in self, but in God and his work. And then for the letter kills, the end of verse 6, but the spirit gives life. And then he talks about that a couple different ways. Now, if the ministry of death, in verse 7, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. So there we see Paul talks about this letter killing as a ministry of death. As Paul picks up this idea in Romans, basically what he's saying is, if you want to be a law obeyer, that's fine. You just have to understand that road only leads one way. There's only one path there. And this is simplistically what this looks like, right? They're given a list of commands. It's written on tablets of stone. It's kept by obedience, which we know doesn't actually happen. That's all of the Old Testament, time and time again, with all kinds of people, and us as well. And finally, there's condemnation. Or death. This is the way of the old covenant. This is why there was a sacrifice system set up. Because they would be working out the trying to live out the commands, and what would they do? They would fail. And so God, in his kindness and his providence, he provided for them a picture of Jesus coming. For them was the sacrificial system. And it wasn't the sacrifices that saved them, as we know. Abraham was justified by faith. It was faith in what God was saying that saved them. But still, they were functioning underneath the old covenant. Well, now if we write the new covenant perspective, it's basically the same, a couple minor changes along the path. The big difference being it comes from the Spirit and it ends in life. This is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free from sin and death. For Christ has done what the law, or God has done what the law could not do by sending his son. So Paul has this idea not only here in 2 Corinthians 3, but also in Romans 8, and it's in other places as well. Big picture, this is a new way of thinking. So new doesn't mean just brand new, nothing similar. New also means that it's similar but slightly nuanced and different. New also includes a new pattern. A new pattern. So the pattern is live off the spirit. Don't live off self, but live by the spirit or in the spirit or through the spirit is a number of different ways that Paul says this. All right, why am I dealing with this with loving one another and First John, and I'm going to catch myself up here. We have a whole bunch of commands in the one another's, right? Let's say there's 35 of them. What we don't want to do is we don't want to do the same thing that the old covenant individuals did. And the problem is that's the way we as humans love to function. Are we familiar with the terms imperatives and indicatives? Probably imperatives, just a fancy way to say commands. We love searching out for the commands in Scripture. We love it when we can check off the boxes and say, I've done this one, I've done that one, 
I've done that one. I've done that one. But that's old covenant thinking. That's not living by the Spirit. That's living by the law and by the letter of the law. And for those who live according to the letter, there's only death. So understand, as we walk through the next several weeks together, if we just say, counsel one another, care for one another, love one another, and that flows from this idea that you must be obedient, we are no better than the teachers of the law who were damned as those that are teaching you. And you are no better than the people who are responding, who will ultimately die in trying to live that way. Because that's the old way of living. So we don't want to just say, here, just do these things and you'll all of a sudden become a better one another church. So what I'm trying to do this morning is remind us, how do we live according to the Spirit? Because again, we don't want to walk into the one another's thinking, I got to check this box. Am I being hospitable? Okay, great. Am I caring for one another? Yes. Okay. Am I greeting one another? Okay, good. That's so wonderful. So this is how this relates to the one another's. One more trouble. I'm going to catch myself up. Okay. One more trouble. There are 34 or 35 one another's. Kind of depends. There are many more of that in the scriptures in the New Testament. But love one another, for instance, would show up over a dozen times. And so we just take the dozen or so occurrences and make it one simplistic one. But just think through this rationally, right? If we become like the Jewish way of thinking, and when I say that, I don't mean derogatorily, I mean Jewish as presented in the Bible, that we need to hunt down how many commandments. I mean, isn't it ridiculous to care whether there are 613 or 614 commandments? I mean, who is going to be able to do that? To keep a record of all 612 or 13. I had somebody in my office this past week, we were talking through the 10 commandments. I wonder how many of us here know all Ten Commandments. You know what I found out and was, was reminded of this past week? I don't remember all of the Ten Commandments. <laughs> Thank God, literally, that that's not what I need to do with my life, is remember the Ten Commandments and live by them in order to be righteous before Jesus. So never mind 613 or 14. What about just 10? All right, so we've now got 35 one another's. Here they all are. Imagine trying to do five of those for a week. Maybe two weeks. Okay, so then you grow your skills, you build some habits, you're all the way there. Now you're up to 20, and then finally you get to 34, and then you become of the opinion there's 35 of them. And so now you've, you've reached 35. All right, problem. Just because it isn't explicitly stated, do this to one another, doesn't mean it's not a one another. Case in point, Ephesians chapter 4, 28. The thief among you is no longer to steal, but is to work with his own hands so that he may have something to share. Now the buzzword, one another, is missing. But that doesn't mean that's not a one another statement. So again, this is just trying to drive home this reality. We don't want to be trying to hunt down all the one another's and think, okay, I've got five of them taken care of. I'm now up to 20 That's not the way we want to be living. We don't want to be living according to the letter because the letter kills. That's the ministry of death or condemnation. This is how this relates to the one another's. This is why we want to be people who are living by the Spirit. So let's live by the Spirit. And the way I'm going to do that for you is, as I put this up there to let you look at it one more time, 
I'm going to be walking through the book of Ephesians. Many of you know I really appreciate Ephesians. It's very helpful in how it presents a very ordered perspective of what this looks like. And you can find this same framework in all other books of the New Testament, but they're more difficult to pick up on because it's a mix of imperatives, here are things that are true about you, indicatives, here are things you need to do. And some of them pick, in fact, some of them start and say, here's something you need to do because this is who you are. So Ephesians just helps us with this order. So let's go through this framework of Ephesians, and I want to draw this out to you, and I'll just let you know this is a lot of information, and you have what I think are the main bullet points on the sheet that you picked up. Otherwise, it's available online if you want in that form, and my hope is not to take 20 minutes to walk through this with you. It's just to go through it very quickly, and then really, here's a hope that I have, that you would spend time this week. There are six chapters of Ephesians. That gives you between now and next Sunday, six days plus an extra one. Just take one day and say, today I'm just going to look at Ephesians 1, 2, 3, 4 times. And I'm not going to look at it because I have to. I'm going to look at it because I get to and because I want to see these things that are true. And I want to see this progression that Paul takes the Ephesians through. So let's go through that together. First, before Paul gives them any commands, he gives them a whole bunch of truths that are real about them. In a very famous verse that is from Verses are very famous sentence that is from verses 3 to 14, one long sentence in the Greek. Just listen to how Paul lavishes God's love on them. Don't go there. Just listen. And when I say these things, and he says, you think me. If you're a believer, think me. And if you're not a believer, think this can be me. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons. Note there, that's not a negative thing because when this was written, sons had far more benefits than daughters did. So it certainly includes sons and daughters, but when it's written this way, legally, what he's trying to communicate is This is to the max. This is like the firstborn son getting all the benefits. All of us, male and female, get that privilege, that right. Adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. I'll stop there and I'll just point out there are 12 statements at least in those several verses there. And then there are 12 more statements in chapter 2. Those are all indicatives. Those are all truth statements about who they are and who we are in Jesus. That's amazing that right out of the gates, Paul would open up and say, just listen to the things that God has done for you. Fill your mind with the hope of the gospel. It's so beautiful. Then, three more statements in chapter 3. Put those together. We're right around 30 or so statements. Paul is just unloading on them wonderful, beautiful truths. Chapter 2, many of us have a couple of verses here memorized, specifically 2, usually 8, 9, and 10. And oftentimes, when we have them, it's this snapshot of, but you were dead in your trespasses and sins, right? But what comes next? But God made you alive. So then there are 12 statements that are the negative that go with the 12 statements that are the positive. It's like he first starts by saying, let me just tell you all the things God is, all the ways God is for you. 
And then he backs up and he says, but wait, is that not clear enough? Let me share with you all the ways you were against God. You were alienated. You were strangers. You were dead in your trespasses and sins and the ways in which you once walked. But God has made you alive. So not only does he tell them all the wonderful things that are true first, then when he tells them all the things that are true about them that are bad and evil and sinful, then he says, but let me respond to that by saying, but God, he's done all of these things for you. Then the prayers, the prayers of Paul are so helpful. There's a study there for real, wonderful book called Spiritual Reformation by D.A. Carson. He walks through the prayers of Paul and talks about how the framework that Paul gives us for prayer is a wonderful biblical framework. Let me just point out, let's put ourselves in Ephesus. First century, we're in a somewhat of a, um, a city by a bay, so to speak, with traffic coming on the road and, and traffic coming by the water. And just think through the things that you and I have today that these people didn't have. Health insurance, retirement, uh, unemployment, grocery stores, transport in the form of vehicles. We could just go on and on. Do you know what Paul does not pray for when he prays for the Ephesians? He doesn't pray for their health needs. He doesn't pray that they would have safe travels. He does not pray that they would have ample money for retirement. Because those things don't satisfy. We have people living here today that show us that as we walk towards death, guess what happens to our bodies? They start to live out death in little bits and ways. Our bodies fail. And so why would we continually pray against the natural course that God has given us, that our bodies are failing? Why not instead, Paul says, why wouldn't we pray for that which satisfies beyond all of these things. So what he points out in chapter one is he says, what's more important, Ephesians, than anything else is that you understand the depth of Jesus' love. So not only do I show you all of these things that are true about you in Jesus, if you trust him, but I'm also praying, chapter one, that the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened, that you would know the hope to which he's called you, that you would know what are the glorious riches of his inheritance in the saints, and that you would know the immeasurable power, greatness of his power toward us who believe. Big picture, he just wants them to comprehend deep in the core of who they are. You are profoundly loved by a holy and just God, and he's provided a way. Then chapter three, it's basically just the same prayer, except he says it in a little bit different way, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, in your person, deep down in the core of your will and your understanding, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Is it getting clear? He's just pressing over and over and over again. The thing that you need to do is not just search for something to obey, Ephesians. You need to be reminded of God's love. And as you dwell on that, you will begin to change internally because that's how the Spirit works. It's not through obedience. That's a really scary statement. I know that, and I'll get there but it's not through obedience. First, it's trust. And the obey comes because we've been trusting. 
and the obey comes because we've been changed internally. And don't worry, we'll get there. Then he talks about what life by the Spirit looks like. He says in chapter 2, verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So through Jesus, he has put to death this way of thinking. It's no longer this way. Jesus' sacrifice shows us that that's the case. Then chapter 4, verse 1, you need to walk in a manner worthy. And that is not, as it says there, to walk with humility and gentleness and patience. Those are modifiers. The way that you walk in a manner worthy is the only way that's worthy. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That's it. That's how you walk in a manner worthy. By faith. By faith that Jesus loves you. By faith, though you you look back at the last eight hours of your day, you think, wow, I bombed that. Wow, I really failed there. Wow, that was horrific of me to do. By faith, you believe God's sacrifice is greater. That's the way that you walk, Paul says. And then he puts it out very clearly in what we know as the put off, put on passage in Ephesians 4, 20 through 24. It's not a three-step process, even though he presents it that way, but to keep it simple, put off the old man, be renewed in your thinking, and put on, the old, uh, put on the new man. So stop doing the things that destroy you, including living by obedience. Now, renew your mind. Go back to the hope of the gospel, of that which is true about you. That's what he just did for them in the beginning of the book, one through three. He just illustrated for them, this is the new way of thinking. Then what follows are examples, individual situations for people. Then he talks about household relationships. Then he talks about masters and servants. Let me just show you this put off, renew, and put on idea straight from Ephesians 4. So you can see the framework, and then when you're reading through later this week, then you'll see it show up in different places. So verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, Put off. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Put on. But remember, the pattern is put off, renew, put on. So the renew is because we are members one of another. So why would you speak a lie? That's like speaking a lie to yourself. And that doesn't make any sense. So why would you do that? I'll show you another one. Be angry and do not sin. Verse 26. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So put off. Be angry. Do not sin, but also put on. Be angry for right, righteous reasons. Why? Renew. Because when you are angry, and it's not for righteous reasons, that's where Satan's playground is. It's not that you can't go to bed angry at one another. Uh, many of you I've shared this with before, the first seven years of our marriage were horrific. In many ways, I was an unkind, uncaring individual. I would yell and shout profanities at my wife. I would scream at her. And for a while, the pair of me being that way and her reading this thinking, we're not supposed to let the sun go down on our anger, otherwise we've sinned, made for some really long nights. But that's not what Paul's trying to say here. It's not that you fail when you let the sun go down on your anger. It's that you miss out on using your anger the right way and letting God redeem it. And when you allow it to grow and fester and feed it, more destruction follows. So that's the framework that's given there. He walks that all the way through to chapter 6, verse 
10. And then all he does to conclude is he reinforces the main point. He's just driving this home. Paul is not talking about wars against demons in Ephesians chapter 6. This is not his focal point. It has nothing to do with what he's been talking about in Ephesians. He does talk about the spirit of the power of the air, the prince of the power of the air, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He does talk about that. But what has he been talking about the whole of Ephesians thus far? He's been talking about fighting against self by believing hope, by believing and hoping in the gospel. And so all he's saying here in Ephesians is fight against self Really, this battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against what's inside because we have been taken captive before we know Jesus. And now that we know him, we have to fight against this old body that we live in, the literal flesh of our body. So that's what he's talking about. It's not fighting against demons. And each of the statements that he makes have their root in Isaiah, where Isaiah talks about this servant, the suffering servant that we know about from chapter 53. But all of these are just really cool ways to say the gospel. Just arm yourself with the gospel. The belt of truth. What is truth? That you, you are your creators. That he has bought you with a price. Or how about the breastplate of righteousness? This protects your core. You are not righteous because of the things that you do. You are righteous because Jesus, through his sacrifice, has made you righteous. Shoes that proclaim the gospel. That one's pretty straightforward. The shield of faith that stop all of the flaming darts of the evil one. Guess where most of my flaming darts come from on a daily basis? Right here. Michael, you're not good enough. Michael, compared to your brothers and sisters, you are not smart. You are not intelligent. You will never measure up to them. Michael, you are diminutive in stature, and that matches the type of man that you are. Michael, the road behind you is littered with failure, and you are a failure. Those are the flaming darts that I fight against. Do you know how I fight against them? By faith. That I'm not defined by my failures. That Jesus has saved me, and I am his. No matter how many times I mess up, no matter how many times I fail, I am his. The helmet of salvation. Protect your mind with the reality. You are not saved by works. You are saved by grace. And finally, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Let me take this a little bit farther than oftentimes we take it. Oftentimes when we think the Word of God, we stop and we think Bible, which is a wonderful thing to think because the Bible is how we understand all of this. But what does John say? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God. And the Word was with God. And then in verse 14, And the word became flesh. So, the sword of the Spirit is Jesus. The most clear display of the living word of God is the living Jesus. So these are all ways that we are to think through the gospel and apply it to our lives. That's the framework of Ephesians. So maybe in response you say, well, Michael, you really like Ephesians so you're just cherry-picking because you really like that one. All right, so I laid down a, a, a challenge to myself. I actually haven't made any edits to this. So if you have feedback, tell me if I'm wrong here because I see it everywhere, and I want you to see it, but if I'm wrong, I want to know that I'm wrong. 
So what I decided to do was this. I said, let's just take the Gospels. We'll put them aside because they have a different goal. But for the rest of the New Testament letters that deal with responding to, in this world, how to live in light of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, what if we can find this reality in all of them? Does that make this case ironclad? Can we shut the book on the reality that we no longer need to go and look for commands to obey? First, we need to go and look to Jesus and let him change us. So I'm going to take you through new covenant living as I see it in the New Testament. I'll admit some of these are veiled, but the more time you spend looking at them, I think the clearer it becomes. So they're here on the screen. You don't have to rush to write them down because they're on a piece of paper. I'm just going to put them on the screen. That way we don't have to go flipping and I can highlight the parts that I think are most important. So Romans, here's Paul, who's responsible for 13 of the New Testament letters. So we're getting rid of half of, or over half of what we have left, taking out the Gospels. Paul says in Romans 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. That's the put off. But put on Jesus. And how do you put on Jesus? It is not making no provisions for the flesh. It is reminding yourself of who Jesus is. That's how you put on Jesus. You equip yourself with the armor of God. I am not who my heart says I am. I am not the list of failures behind me. I am Jesus's because of what Jesus has done for me. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, don't know who he is. We'll add him to the list. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, there's one idea, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This one's not necessarily us, but it is the framework that Jesus himself used. He's staring down the cross. What takes him through the sorrow of being separated from the Father. The writer of Hebrews says it was the joy that was set before him. The joy was not the cross. There was joy in the cross. The joy was not the cross. The joy was what that accomplished and what came. It was looking to heaven. It was being in heaven, back with his Father and with the Spirit in perfect unity again. And not only them, but with all those people that he redeemed. Just think about what you're facing in life today. Is it more vast and more significant than a man being despised and rejected, cursed at, slapped, spit on, beaten, flogged, terrible trial, murdered, and then above all that, separated from God? And that was what got Jesus through that. It was thinking God is good. It was when he was in the garden Father, I don't know if I can walk through this. What got him through it was to realize, remind himself, because he always knew, it's the joy that's before me. That's what got me there. So there's Paul and the writer of Hebrews. James, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. Remember, this is not the letter. As much as I love Bible memorization and I work at it, 
this is not Bible memorization. This is Jesus. Because in its fullness, the word means Jesus. Now, is Bible memorization a part of this? It is. As it changes us, it certainly is a part of it. But he's talking about receiving the implanted word that's true. And why is it implanted? Is it written on stone with letter? No, it's written on our hearts by the Spirit. That's why it's implanted. Now, Peter, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. We know that the context of First and Second Peter is that they're walking through some really difficult trials. Peter says, do not be alarmed at the fiery trial or temptation that's come upon you. Don't think that because you're walking through difficulty, God is not with you and does not care about you. But what, are, what is he telling them to do? They are to set their hope fully on what will be brought to them. They can look to the cross and say, God is for me. I know what's coming is better. That leaves us just John. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And here you respond and you say, well, but Michael, there's that obedience. We ought to abide. That's what we're supposed to do. In fact, you're going to point me to John 15. You're going to say, I'm supposed to abide. Look, it says very clearly, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Michael, there it is. We are to be abiding. We are to be doing. That's how we accomplish this. It's by stepping forward and it's by doing. And I agree with you, but that comes second. What comes first is what Jesus says a little bit before this. He says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will obey my commands. And you say, but Michael, there it is. If you love me, you will obey. But guess how the text actually has this? It is not the second or the first. No, it is not the first. It is not, if you love me, you will obey me. If you show your love for me, obey me. Show your love for me by obeying. It's actually the other. It is, when you love me, don't be surprised that you will obey me. When you dwell on truth, don't be surprised when you're changed in your inner person. When you remind yourself over and over that it is Jesus who saves you, it is Jesus' righteousness that makes you clean, don't be surprised if you have a profound amount of love. We've experienced this, haven't we? Rob talked about it this morning in ADH. When we stop and we just, we stare at the cross and we think about how many mistakes we make, and then somebody walks up to us and they've made a mistake, God has changed us. And we look at that person and say, can I tell you about Jesus? I got patience for you. I got patience as long as the day is. You want patience tomorrow? I got more patience for you. Because when we love God, this naturally changes the inside. Lastly, this is changing our affections. So I've talked a lot about the one another's. We don't want to just be running into 
trying to check all these boxes because if we do that, that leads to death. And I've talked about this new framework that we have in Ephesians that we're to live by the Spirit. But maybe somebody is asking, okay, but practically, how does that work? What, what do I do with that? So here are some passages that show us where you place your affections, that's where you will be. So if you want to be a one another church, place your affections on Jesus. Psalm 115, I have more here than up there. There are idols, sorry, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell, they have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. And those who make them become like them. So do all those who trust in them. This is the problem with idol worship, whatever it is, whether it's a small little carving in wood or whether it's money or fame, possessions, whatever. We just become like that which we worship. We set our affections on these things, and as the psalmist says, we become deaf, dumb, and blind, just like they do. This is the same idea Paul talks about in Romans 1. For although these people knew God, those who could look out and see his divine power clearly displayed before them, they did not honor him, read worship. Instead, they worshiped other things, and so as a result, they became futile in their thinking. Brothers and sisters, this is still you and I today because we are still fighting against the flesh. When we set our affections on other things, even when that's how many of these items in this list can I obey, we just become deaf, dumb, and blind. We become oblivious to the way that God is working. That's why we do foolish things because we're deaf, dumb, and blind and we don't hear wisdom speaking to us. We don't see the folly in front of us and we think, I'm good to go. I don't need to worry about it. Paul says, and we all with unveiled face beholding. So this, those are negatives. These are the positives. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed from one degree, degree of glory to another. For this is from the Lord who is the Spirit. Remember that implanted word? which is also Jesus who is the giver of the Spirit, right? Because he left and then he sent the Spirit and now the Spirit is inside of us. And this is how the Spirit works. We sink our time and energy into dwelling on the hope of the gospel and then we live in light of what's taking place. And as we work, change comes about. As we dwell on what God is doing, he changes us from the inside. Finally, this is what Jesus said when he said, whatever you treasure... Don't be surprised when your heart is there. Don't be surprised. Think about it like a train. If you treasure football and you sink your time and energy into football, do not be surprised when football season comes around and you decide to plop down in front of a TV when you have kids who would love to do things with you. And you are, I don't know, apathetic about it. There are dads here who have kids who are out of the house now who will tell you, it wasn't football for them, it was this, or it was that. And they say, now that I'm on the other side, I see what I missed out on. These sweet little ones in our house, or in our houses that we have time to spend with, this is where we sink our energies. And I'm guilty of this as well. It's not football for me, but I have other things. But Jesus says, it's like a train. What you treasure, that's that engine, the caboose. It may take 100 cars, but it's going to get there. And so... 
if you treasure Jesus, if we treasure Jesus, he will change us. Okay, let's pray. Gotta pray that as we walk through the one another's in these next couple of weeks, and as we think through caring for one another, greeting one another, loving one another, being hospitable. Gotta pray you remind us it is not about keeping the law. We're gonna fail. This is what we're gonna do. We are gonna fail in trying to accomplish the one another's. But if we turn our hearts to you, if we dwell on the reality of what Jesus has done for us, if we fill our minds with songs, if we take moments in the day to look at Jesus instead of the other things that oftentimes vie for our affections, you will change us. If we love you, we will obey. You you will change us from the inside out. God, so we pray, do that work. Thank you for Jesus and for what he's done. Amen.